Well, we are on week two of four in our Frequently Asked Questions series. Uh, last week, we started this series by trying to answer the question, if there's a God who's good and also in control, why does life go the way it seems to go? Why is there so much suffering? Why is there so much pain? Why is there so much evil in the world? Why, why do the really dark things happen if God really is good and really in control? Uh, if you missed last week, and we know that you're going to miss a lot of weeks during the summer, uh, but you can go to graceroadchurch.org and download any of the messages for free. Also, you can download our app in the iTunes store and the Android marketplace, and all the sermons go online there too, and we'll, we'll catch up pretty soon here on the app and get that uh, get last week's message up there. But today's question is, if Christianity is legit, why is there so much crazy weird stuff in the Bible? And, and what I'm talking about here are things, as you read through the Old Testament, like polygamy, dietary restrictions, like where God says not to eat shellfish or pork products. Um, there are animal sacrifices. That's a major part of the Old Testament. There's slavery in the Bible. And so here are Christians saying that Christianity is totally legit. We're saying that the Bible is the word of God. But then you read through the Bible and you see all these things. And here's how it's a frequently asked question, or here, here's how it's not a frequently asked question. I have yet in the last few years since we planted the church to have any guy come in and say, listen, I'm actually considering polygamy. Um, you know, I'm married, but I could afford another family, another wife. My wife's open to the idea of a sister wife, so we're kind of looking around. And Abraham did it, so I'm assuming that this is okay for us. That's never come up once. Um, nobody has ever come in and said, you know, what I think our church needs more of is animal sacrifice. Um, in my last church, we used to do that, but it seems like we never do here, like we're dismissing those parts of the Bible. Never heard that. Nobody thinks slavery is a good idea. Nobody has come in saying, you know, I ate at Crab Shack last night, and it's just been weighing on my conscience. I just, I feel like I can't handle the guilt. I have this empty spot in my soul because I ate it at Crab Shack. You probably have an empty spot in your wallet, but your conscience is fine. Like, you're, you're coming out okay. You know, if loving bacon is wrong, I don't want to be right. And so... <laughs> So that's the mindset, and, and those are not frequently asked questions in those ways. People aren't coming and bringing those things up, but here's how it does come up. Um, sometimes it comes up in a humorous way when people poke fun at the Bible. Uh, there's an author named A.J. Jacobs who wrote a book called The Year of Living Biblically, and uh, he gave a TED Talk on it. So if you go to TED.com and watch his talk, all the nerds go to that website. Um, but he, he gives his talk, and what he did for a year was immerse himself in the Bible, and he said, I'm going to obey every command that I can find in there. So he tried to obey all the Ten Commandments. He tried to love his neighbor as himself. But then he also tried to obey the, the laws about not trimming the corner of his beard, about not wearing garments that were like a 50-50 blend, not eating shellfish, and even stoned an adulterer with, with gravel. Um, because, because he wanted to totally immerse himself. And the conclusion he came to was that even people who claim to have this really high view of the Bible, even people who really claim to believe the whole thing, still just pick and choose what we want to obey. And, and although he wasn't entirely dismissive of what was in there, he actually saw some beauty in those things. He said even people who really claim to believe the Bible don't believe the whole thing because nobody cares about shellfish and beards, nobody's stoning adulterers, none of us obey that. So sometimes people will poke fun at it in a funny way, but then also sometimes will just, people will be angry at Christians and try to destroy the Bible because of what's in there. Uh, if you saw the video that was floating around the internet a couple weeks ago, uh, uh, a talk was being given by Dan Savage, the guy who starts the It Gets Better project, and he was speaking to a bunch of high school journalists. And, and, he was and this is what he said, and I'll censor it heavily because um, there are kids in here. He says, we can learn to ignore the bull in the Bible about gay people the same way we have learned to ignore the bull in the Bible about shellfish, about slavery, about dinner, about farming. We ignore bull in the Bible about all sorts of things. So, so in other words, because there's some stuff that we've determined to be bull in the Bible, we chuck the whole thing. And so the question for us, is, is that what we do? Do I read the Bible looking for bull, throw out everything I think is bull, and then adopt all the rest and say, well, this is my faith? Do I just pick and choose? Is that our approach to Scripture? So that's how the question gets asked, and it gets asked pretty regularly. So let me just affirm a couple things to start. Number one, I believe that every word in the Bible— Old and New Testament, in the original manuscripts, was given by God. Every word. This is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, 
will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus says there's not a single stroke of the pen that wasn't put there by God and that isn't legitimate. The whole thing, even the parts that seem crazy. It's the word of God. So I believe that, which means we have no authority whatsoever to change any of it. But I also believe there's an awful lot of the Bible we're not supposed to obey. Well, that's weird. Like to say, God said all this, it's really important, but there are parts that we can just chuck and not obey. That doesn't seem like a consistent thing, because if God said it, it seems like he's saying it for a reason and we need to obey it. But here's what we need to get. First of all, the Bible was not given all at one time. It it didn't just drop down. It's not just a list of propositions about who God is. It's not a list of rules. It's not just a list of do's and don'ts. It was given over a period of 1,400 to 1,800 years. And in there, there are some lists. There are some rules. There are some propositions about who God is. But there are also poems and songs and proverbs and history. It's written not just as this list of here's who God is and here's what you need to do, but it's written as a big story. And it's a big story that has unfolded over time. And if we can, as Christians, understand the story that God's telling, then we'll also be able to understand what part we play in that story and what parts of the law, what parts of what God said were only given for a different part of the story. You know, for example, if if you show up at Lake Ontario, you show up at the beach in July in a snowsuit, everybody's going to say, you're crazy. And it's not that snowsuits are crazy, it's that a snowsuit in July at the beach is crazy. If you show up at Lake Ontario in January and you're wearing your swimsuit, everybody's going to think you're crazy. It's not because swimsuits at the lake are a crazy idea, it's because they're a crazy idea in January. So there are times that things that are crazy in one season are totally legit in another season. And when we read through the Bible, an awful lot of what seems crazy to us would be crazy if the season hadn't changed, if there hasn't been a a change of the part of the story that we're in. So what I'm hoping to do today is give a broad overview of the big story that God's telling in the Bible. Uh, Normally, we spend time going straight through books of the Bible, so we're kind of zooming in on, on a couple of frames in that movie. But what I want to do today is tell the whole story and then still get you home for kickoff. So, so that's the plan. If you want to go to Genesis 1, um, buckle up, because we're going to try to do a pretty broad overview here, because I really think this is important. It's important for us to see the story that we're part of. It's important for us to see the big thing that God's doing, because then that makes sense of all the little things. And then when we see how all those little things fit, those become not our grounds to dismiss the Bible, but they actually give us a higher regard for the Bible. So Genesis 1 Verse 26, God has created the world. He's got everything in place. And, um, and he picks up with his creation of man. So he says, let us make man in our image. So right away, God's already talking in the plural here. Um, and this is not because there are many gods, but it's because God has always been three in one. He's always been triune. He's always been Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That wasn't just some new thing that St. Augustine came up with. That was... That is who God is. He's always been three in one. So he says, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the ground. So God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God creates Adam and Eve and they are created to be image bearers of God. They're created to reflect back to God what God is like. And part of the way they do that is with the way that they are ruling over creation under God. So you have God who's the creator of all things, the ruler of all things, and he puts man underneath him almost like his governor to steward and to rule this creation that he's given us. And he says that he wants them to take this earth and subdue it. So the earth was perfect, but it was wilderness. And there's a difference between perfect wilderness and a perfect garden. And so God says, what I want you to do, Adam and Eve, is subdue this whole thing. So this shows us a little bit of what people are made to do. 
We are made to take every square inch of creation, subdue all of it, rearrange it so that the order and the beauty of it reflects something about our creator. But also, it means that people are supposed to care for it at the same time. So this actually makes people on the far left and the far right upset, which is what Jesus always did. Um, On the one hand, the Bible's telling the people who are on the far right, we are supposed to care for this world. We do have to manage it well. we, We aren't supposed to just strip it raw and destroy it. But then on the other hand, it's telling people on the far left, it is ours. We're not parasites here. Um, This is ours to have dominion over. We are to rule over this in a wise way that reflects the glory and beauty of our creator. Um, So so when God tells them to do this, he doesn't just plop them in the woods and say, here, make sense of this whole thing. He actually creates a prototype of what he wants the whole world to be like under man's dominion. So in Genesis chapter 2, verse 8, and we will speed up. Uh, We're not going to go through the whole Bible this slowly. It says, uh, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that's pleasant to the sight and good for the food, good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So God orders this little part of the wilderness into the Garden of Eden. And so while the whole world is perfect wilderness, Eden is perfect garden. It's ordered, it's beautiful, and God says, Adam and Eve, your job is to dress that and to keep that and to subdue the whole world and make it look like that. So that's what we're supposed to do. Um, And he puts those trees in the garden, and one of them, he says, you don't eat from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, Now skip to chapter 2, verse 18. It says, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. In the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So this is how things were made. Uh, God creates man. Uh, Man names the animals, showing that he has dominion over the animals. There's not a suitable helper found for man among those animals. So God then makes Eve out of Adam's rib. And when Adam sees her, he doesn't just name her, he sings a song. He says, this is the bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. So we have romance. We have marriage, where the only pattern that God gives for marriage in Scripture is, is one man and one woman for life. So this is marriage as God has designed it. Uh, we see dominion. We see this command to be fruitful and multiply, to have lots of kids, have them fill the earth, and have them help in this whole project of managing this whole thing. Multiply like weeds, have at it, and make this whole world beautiful to reflect your creator. And then apparently when we're done with that, God will step in and say, okay, here's what's next. So that's how things are supposed to be. You have God at the head. Man is under God. All of creation is under the man. And that's the order that God had established throughout that whole thing. So there's peace. There's harmony. God relates to man as a father who's generous and gracious and makes his green earth grow things. It doesn't fight back at man at all. It's paradise. It's perfect. And then... Satan comes in. Satan is an angel who has fallen, and he comes in the the form of a serpent and tempts them to disobey the one command they had, which is don't eat from that one tree. So he tempts Eve, and she is deceived and eats. She goes to her husband, and, and she offers him the fruit. He's not deceived, but he eats anyway. So now there's guilt. Now there's sin. And the whole way that they relate their relationship with God works changes. Look at uh, chapter 3, verse 7. It says, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. Then they end up running and hiding. So I would imagine, you know, Adam and Eve used to love that time of the day when the Lord would come and walk with them in the evening. 
That was something they looked forward to, being with their father God, relating to the one who ruled over everything. But now they knew he was coming, and because they did, they try to put together a covering for themselves that doesn't work in these fig leaves, and they run and they hide. So everything gets broken, and now God comes looking for them. He comes and he finds them. He asks them what happened. And immediately, instead of being transparent, they blame, blame one another. So it was going to be this beautiful society all of a sudden starts to be dominated by politicians. We're saying it's not my fault, it's their fault. It's not my fault, it's their fault. They start throwing blame around. Everything that was good and beautiful is broken and tarnished, and it gets worse. God comes and brings some justice. Chapter 3, verse 14. So already the relationship with God has changed. But the wages of sin is death. And here's where God hands out those wages. It says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So God curses the serpent, but even in that curse, there's a little bit of a promise. He says there's an offspring coming from Eve, and he's not just saying people will step on snakes. He's saying there's one guy, and that one guy's coming, and he's going to crush the head of the serpent once and for all. And there will be pain. His heel will be bruised. He's going to have to suffer to get there, but there's a promise already given. Even before we start fully preaching the gospel, God's promising that the offspring of Eve will come and in the end crush that serpent. Chapter 3, verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So before the fall, before sin, before the curse, God had made Adam and Eve with some distinct gender roles. The Bible says male and female, he created them. So he created men and women not to be the same, to have different roles in home and society, to have different roles, but to be equal. And now that gets cursed. And those roles that are meant to be different end up getting perverted. Um, where it says that her desire will be for her husband and he will rule over her, what it's saying is that she's going to have this desire to usurp the rightful headship of her husband and, and rule over the family kind of as an extreme feminist. And then his temptation is going to be to rule like an extreme chauvinist and to be a jerk. And so, so family at this point gets twisted. The rightful roles where a husband is supposed to be like a servant leader of his family who lays down his life for his bride, like Jesus does, that gets twisted. And the temptation now becomes for guys to be chauvinist pigs. So the cornerstone of society, the family, gets broken. Everything's messed up at this point. Chapter 3, verse 17. And to Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you. Remember, he was supposed to protect her. He didn't. He says, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So now originally, before the curse, before the fall, work was there. So work is not a result of sin. The fact that, that a job exists is not because there was sin or not because of part of God's curse, but your job is cursed because of sin. This is why your job stinks, because the ground fights back now. Just like Adam fought back at God when God had given him commands, now the ground fights back at Adam when he tries to tell the ground what to do. And so there are thorns, there are thistles, there's pain, there's suffering, and eventually there's death. So things are bad now. What God had originally intended, what he had originally designed, gets broken, gets tarnished, the beauty is gone, society's gone, roles are twisted, and so you say, what does this have to do with bacon? Um, we'll get there, but first, chapter 3, verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, and he clothed them. So here they are with their fallen apart fig leaves, trying to cover up what they've done, trying to cover themselves, and the fig leaves don't work. Here, here's that first human attempt to try to cover ourselves before God and to make ourselves not naked, to make ourselves look like we haven't done what we've done. And God comes in and he says, the coverings you make for yourselves, they don't work. It's not enough. So apparently an animal dies, there's blood that's spilled, there are skins, 
and God sews those skins together and makes a suitable covering for Adam and Eve. So already here again, before the gospel comes, we have a foreshadowing of the gospel that Jesus Christ would have to come and shed his blood to ultimately cover sin so that we could have a suitable covering, so we could stand before our God. And God promises that early on. And we've got our religious attempts to get to God, to cover ourselves up, to make things look like they're not as bad as they are. God says none of them work. Without the shedding of blood, there's no payment for sin. So God comes into the world thousands of years later, and he sheds his blood. So these guys have everything broken, everything twisted, and then they get cast out of the garden. They get sent out of their place. This was the place that was made for them, and they get sent out. So ever since that time, people have been looking for a reason, roaming through the night to find their place in this world. It's uh, Michael W. Smith. Um, so, th- so they get sent out right at that point, and everything's broken, everything's twisted, everybody's wandering. Um, nations start to form and fight one another. The world becomes a dark place. Adam and Eve have kids, and one of them murders the other one. So things are bad. These nations that are out there start to organize, And as they organize, they all worship their own gods. They all worship their own demons. And the world is ruled over, the Bible says, by principalities and powers at this time. So God, who was going to rule the world as a generous father, steps aside like people wanted him to, and now the demons rule. So nations worship their God. They follow their God. They're driven by their idols. And those idols destroy them. So the world is bad the world is dark. It's spinning out of control. You read the first few chapters of Genesis, and even the heroes of the faith aren't heroes. They're doing terrible things. I mean, even Noah, he gets out of the boat having just saved mankind. First thing he does is plant a vineyard and get drunk and naked. And you go, man, this is, this is bad. I, I see where this is going. God said, to dust you shall return. So you look at the story of that time, and it's spiraling so far out of control. And if you were to project where that whole thing ends, you're just thinking, dust. This is where it's going. Everyone's going to end up dead. This is going to be a very bad thing. The Titanic has just hit the iceberg, and the rest of this thing is going to be the story of it sinking. But then you fast forward to Revelation chapter 21. This is a couple books to the right of Genesis. And um, this is what it says in Revelation 21 verse 2. He says, in the end here, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. So this story doesn't go where we were expecting it to go. We were expecting the sin, the curse, the death, the murder to spiral out of control and turn the whole thing back to dust. But then at the end of the story, you've got everything new. There's no more pain. There's no more crying. There's no more sin. There's no more shame. There's no more country music. God is here with his people. All things are good. I would say at this point that um, there are no more cats. But the Bible actually says that the lion will lay down with the lamb. So, so this reversal is going to be so thorough that even the evil that cats are will be stripped out of them and they will be there in this new, re- renewed form. So that's where the story's going. So what in the world could possibly happen between the fall and the sin and the curse to get it to where all things are new and it ends almost exactly like you would expect it to have ended if Adam and Eve had never sinned in the first place? This story must take a radical turn somewhere because there are major issues that have to be dealt with in between. You have to deal with our sin. I mean, when we sin against God, justice demands a punishment be paid. And so how is it that there are going to be all these people in this new heavens and this new earth? I mean, we should all just be in hell. We have this hatred for God where we rejected him. We want nothing to do with him. And when he comes to people all throughout the Old Testament, You see them rejecting him left and right. We don't want God on his terms. The Bible teaches that our hearts are like hearts of stone. So so how does that get changed? Societies are totally disordered. Everything's twisted. Nobody knows which way is up. So how do we get to a point where people are even willing for there to be this new order of things 
where up is up and down is down. How does this cursed and broken and falling apart world get to where nothing falls apart again? And that's the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible is the story of God's creation and his intent for this creation. Adam and Eve messing everything up, sinning, everybody in between sinning, but God's still telling this great story of how he steps in to redeem the world and bring everything to this happy ending. So let's go to Genesis chapter 12. Uh, There's this guy named Abram, and he's living in a fallen world. Uh, Everything's broken. People have disregarded God's order for everything. Uh, This guy, Abram, is also a mess. He's living in a city where they worship the moon, we think. Uh, Polygamy was practiced by every tribe on the globe for the most part. And then in Genesis 12, not because Abram was awesome, but because God's awesome, God goes to him, and in verse 1, he says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to that land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So remember, Adam and Eve cast out of the garden, cast out of the land. Everything gets twisted, societies fall apart, and here's God in his grace and mercy stepping in, saying, I'm rebuilding this thing. And he goes and he finds Abram, sends him back into Eden. He says, go back into that land, because that same place where the curse came from, you're going to be a blessing to all the world from there. I'm going to make a great nation out of you. Uh, And then he says, it's going to be a rough road for your people. Don't expect just a straight line up where things just get better all the time. He says, there's going to be Egypt that's going to make you slaves. They're going to live there for four generations. Uh, The land is not ready for you yet. You know, living in this land now are, are the Amalekites, the Amorites, all these people who are wicked. And God says that their wickedness isn't wicked enough to where I would tell you to wipe them out yet. So then in Genesis 15, verse 15, he says this to him. He says, as for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So God's going to let these people become as wicked as they can be. And then when there is no other way, he's going to send Abraham's children back into that land. He's going to have them wipe them out, which explains one of the weird things, which is there's some genocide in the Bible. He's going to have them go in there, wipe them out, and start to rebuild a civilization where God is king. So now they're going to build this new nation. And it's going to be very different from all the other nations of the world because all the other nations have have this king over them. God is going to be the king of these people. And he's going to set up the norms for their culture. He's going to reprogram this little subsection of humanity to learn what society is supposed to be like, to relearn who God is, to learn what family is, to learn what justice is, to learn what the law is. They're going to build their lives according to the wisdom of God so that they can be a light to all nations. And he's going to preserve this unique culture through which the Savior will come to rescue everybody. Now, at this point, humanity is not even ready. They don't know what justice is. They don't know what family is supposed to be. They don't know what up and down are. So God is going to spend some time completely reprogramming them. And there are going to be some important things they have to learn. Number one, they have to learn that there is one true God. This is unheard of in the world at that time. Every nation's worshiping its own God. And they figured that when you switch nations, you also switch gods and worship whatever the local god is there. Nations have multiple gods. And so God comes on the scene and immediately in his law, what he's trying to drive home to these people is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. There's one true God. There wasn't a society built on that idea anywhere. So that had to be built. There also had to be people who understood what right and wrong was and understood the character of God. So God gives his law. He gives his commandments. Because naturally, we just don't know what the law of God is. Not all of it. I mean, some of it comes naturally. We get the sense that you shouldn't murder somebody. But we don't naturally get the sense that it's wrong to covet somebody else's stuff. So God has to come in and reprogram the consciences of these people. And he does that by giving them his law. Also, he has to teach them how we deal with the fact that we've sinned. You know, we read through the Ten Commandments, and it's clear that we've broken them. We've lied. We've dishonored our parents. And the natural tendency of the disordered human heart is to say, I'm going to cover this up somehow. I'm going to make fig leaves again. 
I'm going to make myself look good by becoming religious, doing good things. And if I do enough good things, then God has accepted me. That's the natural tendency of our heart. And God says, no, that, that doesn't do it. In fact, the answer is not inside you, it's outside of you. So God initiates this massive sacrificial system where a temple is built, where animal sacrifices are offered regularly, where there's blood all over the place, because what he also needs to drive home to these new people to prepare them for this Savior is that without the shedding of somebody else's blood, there's no way your sin gets paid for. So yeah, we read about these animal sacrifices, and they seem crazy, but God was having to do some radical things to reprogram a group of people to understand justice at all. Now, the nice thing is the New Testament goes back and explains a lot of that for us. If you want to go to Hebrews chapter 10, um, in, the, in the Old Testament, we have a lot of who God is and what God's doing concealed a little bit. In the New Testament, it becomes much more clear. A lot of what he's doing is revealed there. And so Hebrews 10, verse 1, talking about that sacrificial system, talking about that law, it says this. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So it looks back and it says, that law was there, those sacrifices were there, but they don't make people perfect. They don't actually clean sin away. Verse 2, otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. He says, it isn't possible for a bull to die and for that to take away sin, but it's a reminder of something. Then he keeps going and shows what that's a reminder of. It says, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law, then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first order in order to establish the second. Now I know that's some heavy sledding and Hebrews is a tough book to work through, but what it's basically saying is that Jesus is this figure off on the horizon back before Jesus came. And he casts a long shadow into the Old Testament. And those shadows were the sacrifices. So as a shadow of Jesus, people would offer these sacrifices because there was something else that those shadows pointed to. And then when Jesus comes, he comes and he says, those shadows were my shadow. They're all about me. And then when Jesus dies on the cross, he's the actual sacrifice where that blood can actually cleanse our sin and can set us right with God. What God was doing was trying to take people who had been worshiping demons, following idols, being totally abused by them, and reprogram them so that what Jesus came and did would make some sense. And that would take a long time. I mean, imagine if you were to adopt a child who was eight years old who had been abused his entire life. Imagine how much time it takes for, for that child to trust parents because parents have always been a nightmare in that kid's life. Imagine how long it takes for you to be able to say to that kid, I'm your father, and for him to think that's a good thing. It takes some time. And so God's looking at the world that is abused by the demon gods they serve, and he says, I'm going to go in there and show them what a real God's like, but it's going to take some time. It's going to take some training. I've got to put some training wheels on, and that's what those sacrifices were. Um, It's kind of like when you go somewhere, you turn your GPS on, and I do, I'm lost everywhere I go. And so my GPS is just running all the time, always telling me how to get to where I'm going. And it's helpful most of the time. Sometimes I feel like I'm driving in circles and it doesn't know what's going on. But that's what I would be doing without it anyway. And so, um, so I've got the GPS on and it tells me where to go. It tells me where to turn. And then when I get home, it says, you have arrived. And then it's quiet. It doesn't say anything else because it doesn't need to. I don't need to keep it in my pocket and have it telling me all the time, you are home. You are home. You are home. You are, I know that. That much I know. That this is where I'm supposed to be. And so I don't need it at that point. It doesn't need to be on at that point. These sacrifices were like a GPS that were telling people that Jesus was coming. And then once he came, once he died, once he was sacrificed, the GPS says, you have arrived, and then it's quiet. So there are no more sacrifices today. 
Jesus is the destination. He was the destination of all those sacrifices. He was the one casting the shadow that all of those sacrifices were. And so the reason we don't obey those now is not because they're not in the word of God, not because they're not serious. And if it were 4,000 years ago and we were Jews, I would say, God said we're supposed to do this, let's do it. But we don't do it today because Jesus has set up a new order. That was the snowsuit for winter. We don't need to put the snowsuit on in the summertime. God has changed the season. So things have changed. So, so God had to teach people who he was. He had to teach them his nature. And that's what the sacrifices were for. He also had to create this unique culture that would stand out among all the other cultures of the world. So it wouldn't just get absorbed into every other culture e- easily. They had to be a little bit weird so that all these times that they were captured and taken captive, they didn't just disappear because there needed to be a culture that was ready when Jesus came. And so God prescribed all the norms for that culture. You know, some of the things that make a culture a culture are that we speak the same language. You know, they spoke Hebrew. And then we eat a lot of the same foods. You know, in the United States, we don't usually eat dog. Um, there really isn't a reason for that. I mean, it, it really doesn't make sense that it's totally cool with us that we'll eat a cow and that's delicious, but then we wouldn't eat a dog. You know, I'm guessing that a medium-rare St. Bernard is pretty tasty. I, I don't know. There is no reason uh, that we would say that that's gross, but we all say it's gross. For some reason, we just mention it. We say, oh, that's disgusting. But a cow, no, that's totally legit. That's delicious. So it, it doesn't really make sense. There are some arbitrary norms in every culture. And God says, with the Jews, he was going to prescribe those norms. He was going to create that unique culture that was unique so that it stayed isolated, it stayed its own culture. So when the Savior came through that culture, he had people around him who recognized him. And this is where the bacon comes in. Leviticus chapter 11, verse 4, this is what God says. He says, Nevertheless, among those that chew the cud or part the hoof, you shall not eat these. The camel, don't eat camel, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, it's unclean to you. And the rock badger, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, it's unclean to you. And the hare, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, it's unclean to you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof and is cloven-footed but does not chew the cud, it's unclean to you. Okay, so that's weird. God just told us not to eat delicious things like pigs. Now, he also told us not to eat some other stuff that you're probably not craving. You, know, you probably didn't come in here this morning and say, I'm going to like barbecue a camel today because <laughs> that hump meat is so moist and delicious. <laughs> you're probably not a, looking for a feast of rock badger or anything like that. But these dietary restrictions, these are commands from God for a unique nation in a unique time And the Messiah had to come through that unique nation. But here's really good news. In the New Testament, Jesus comes, and in 70 AD, Jerusalem's leveled, it gets destroyed, and the command that Jesus gave before he ascended back to heaven is, go to all nations and make disciples of all nations. So now what God's doing in the nation is not just something he was doing in the nation of Israel, it's something that he's doing in all nations. So all of the traditions that were prescribed just to make Israel a unique nation— we don't have to obey anymore. So we can eat pig to the glory of God. Um, You can feast on it and enjoy it, not because God had never said that it was wrong to eat it. He did at one point for one people in one season, but the season has changed. And this is part of the grace of the new covenant that we live in. We can eat bacon, and it's wonderful. Um, Now, here's the thing. Also, what comes with this is you don't have to eat bacon. If you don't like things that are awesome, you don't have to. You can, uh, you can throw that aside. You don't have to do it. We, we don't have prescribed for us one way or another. Every few years, there's somebody else who writes like, the, this is the diet from God book, and you get it, and it's all like, this is why you shouldn't eat these things because they're all sin. I'm all for writing a book that says this would be nutritious, but it's not sin to eat any of those things. So, so even if you come in craving a rock badger, Go ahead, man. Fourth of July. Put a spit in that thing, grill it up, and eat it to God's... I don't even know what a rock badger is. It's like, I think it's like a big guinea pig, so I don't even know if that's, if that's legal. But, um, but it's not sin, so, so you can eat it. Um, you can eat pig. Uh, a comedian, he said, uh, a pig is an amazing animal because it can take an apple, which is basically garbage, and turn it into bacon. 
That's, that's magic. And so, so we can enjoy that magic in the new covenant that we live in. That's a good thing. We're allowed to eat awesome things like bacon. All those laws have been lifted. The restrictions aren't there. It's not that they weren't part of the word of God. They were for a different season. Now, another part of God remaking humanity, which is what he started doing early on in Genesis, is to redo marriage. Remember, God's original design in the garden was marriage is one man married to one woman. It was Adam and Eve. It wasn't Adam and Eve and Susie and Sally. It wasn't multiple wives. But what do you do when the whole world has turned against that and run into polygamy? I mean, you have cultures that are, they're warring tribes. So in any of these tribes that are going to war all the time, they have far more women than they do men. And so what people did wrongly is they responded to that to, by saying, listen, there are three or four times as many women as there are men. It's like Roberts Wesleyan. And so what we have to do is, um, am I wrong? I, I don't okay. But uh, just go to RIT. We've got to get those schools together, all right? I mean, we could balance things out there. Um, so you've got three or four times as many women as men, and people have decided, well, here's what we should do, is we should have guys marry multiple wives. Now, if God goes into a culture like that, like a bull in the china shop, and remember, at this time, women weren't working jobs outside of the house. They couldn't provide for themselves. If they had kids, they couldn't provide for them. They had to have a husband to be kept from poverty and even sickness and death for their kids because of the extreme poverty. So if God goes in and he says, I am banning polygamy now. Divorce all the wives that you don't like, keep your favorite, and then all the other ones, just ditch them. Now, in some societies, you could have three out of four women abandoned by their husbands, no means to provide for their kids, widespread poverty, sickness, disease, and death. Polygamy is definitely not Christian. It's sub-Christian. It's sub-creational. But widespread poverty, sickness, disease, and death, God's not a fan of that either. So should he step in and outright outlaw polygamy and destroy the lives of millions? Or is there a better way to get it done? This is what Acts 17.30 says, kind of describing how God handles things when people mess their lives up with their ignorance. He says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So there are sinful things that, God, that people did in their ignorance that God overlooked. But now, as the story has progressed... As the veil on who God is has lifted a little bit more, we see more of who God is and his order gets restored. Over time, marriage gets put back in its place. And in fact, what's happened is everywhere that Christianity has gone, fairly quickly, within a couple of generations, polygamy has dissolved. You know, God comes and, and he says, yeah, I understand that in all these tribes, the most influential elders, the most powerful people, they had more wives. If you were a tribal elder in a city somewhere, you had more influence, you had more money, and so with that came multiple wives. God comes in the New Testament, and he, in the middle of this wilderness world, he creates this prototype new humanity called the church. And in this prototype new humanity called the church, he says this is not the way it should be. Now, he doesn't outright outlaw it and say if you've got multiple wives, divorce them, but he does say this, 1 Timothy 3. He says an elder is to be the husband of one wife. So tribal elder, lots of wives. That's the way things roll. In the New Testament, the, the new humanity in the church, those who rule, the elders, one wife. And if you've got a lot of wives, you can't be an elder. So imagine this tribal chief comes in. He's got 20 wives, and he just assumes, I had influence in the tribe, I should have influence in the church. And then we say, no, the church is totally different than that. You can't. You're not a one-woman man. You don't have one wife. If this guy is submissive to the will of God and he wants something better for his kids, then he raises that next generation of kids to marry one person. And so anywhere the church goes and becomes prominent, polygamy dissolves, and it does so without creating poverty, sickness, and death. So yeah, it looks crazy when you have Abraham having a lot of wives, but he was in a disastrous world. The, the polygamy of the kings uh, God had never said it was okay. He actually told the kings not to have multiple wives. They did it anyway. But God didn't just blow things up. He changed them. And this is where, where slavery comes into. Uh, the kind of slavery you see in the Bible, first of all, is not the kind of slavery we had here. The kind of slavery we had in the United States is always called sin in the Bible. And it's not something that was even squeezed out over time. It's something that was prohibited. 
by God because there was kidnapping involved. The Bible says kidnappers aren't going to inherit the kingdom of God. Um, kidnapping is a bad thing. There shouldn't be kidnapping. There was racism involved, and God has always hated racism. In fact, the slaves that you see in the Bible, for the most part, are white guys. Um, the slavery in the Bible was not a racist arrangement, and it wasn't a kidnapping arrangement. It was a merciful arrangement. Often what would happen is if they went to war with some enemies in, a, in another country, there would be guys who lost that war, and they would normally be killed as enemy combatants. But as a merciful arrangement, they could be slaves instead. And then those slave owners, they were given all kinds of laws on how not to abuse a slave, how not to overstep your bounds, how to love them, how to treat them like they're in the image of God. Um, also, if people ran, ran up all kinds of debt that they couldn't pay, sometimes they would sell themselves into slavery for a short period of time. And during that time, there were all kinds of laws, there were all kinds of commands that were put around that. Now still, anywhere that Christianity has gone, even that kind of slavery has been squeezed out. Everywhere it goes. And then the bad kind of slavery, it, the, I mean, it's all bad, but then the, the Western kind of slavery where there was kidnapping and there was racism, it was Christians who led the fight against it. Now, I know there were also Christians on the other side taking Bible verses out of context, trying to justify what they were doing, but it was a Christian guy like William Wilberforce in England who led the fight to say these people are made in God's image, therefore a person shouldn't own a person. But again, if God had come in and just totally outlawed it, you had a lot of people whose living was totally dependent on it. And again, he wasn't going to create the poverty, sickness, and death. He was going to squeeze something like that out over time. So, so there's some stuff in the Bible that looks crazy. But a lot of times it looks crazy because it's a snowsuit. But it wouldn't have looked crazy in the wintertime. Now, on the other hand, there's some stuff in the Bible that looks crazy that is binding today, that is for us today. There's some stuff in there that always goes against our culture. You know, Christianity, the church, is supposed to be in some ways a counterculture, where we don't just lick our fingers and stick them, stick them up in the wind and figure out which way the winds of the culture are blowing and say, that's what we're going to be. We do go to the Bible and we say, God, what is the prototype? What does this new humanity look like? And there are commands in there that seem completely weird in our culture. Commands about uh, being faithful to our spouses. Commands about gender roles. Com there are all kinds of things that Christians hold to that are opposed vehemently by our culture. But that doesn't mean that they're wrong. In fact, everywhere the gospel goes, there should be some things that are pretty hard for us to learn. There should be some hard hills for us to get over because the winds of culture are against what the Bible teaches. But as Christians, we just believe that God knows what he's doing. It's not that we always see how he's doing it. It's not that we know how he's putting all the pieces together. We just know that he's good. We know he's God. We know he's got this thing under control. Um, there, there are plenty of things that look crazy, but then after time, they don't. You know, for example, the cross of Jesus. You know, what had to happen in between all that for justice, for sin to be paid, was that the Son of God had to come to this world and reign as king by dying on a cross. At the time, that looked crazy. That's not how kings reign. I mean, he came in on a donkey. Everybody's celebrating. They're all screaming, Hosanna, save us now. He's coming in to save. And so you would expect, you know, if we're just going by the wisdom that man has, you would expect that the way that he reigns is by overthrowing all the power, kicking some tail, setting up his, his throne in Jerusalem. But he knows that there's more to be reigned over than just the political system. He's got to change these hearts of stone into soft hearts. He's got to change us from people who hate God into people who love him. He's got to pay the price for our sin. And so our king, even though it looked foolish, reigned by dying on the cross. At the time, they mocked him. Because look how stupid that is. This is the king of the Jews. They said, this is the king. Yeah, that's smart. Dead king on a stick. That, that makes sense. But then three days later, he rose from the dead, showing that he was wise, that he does reign, that there are more enemies to be defeated than just Rome. He had to defeat the enemies of Satan, sin, and death, and he sets up this system where whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And yeah, there is coming a day when every nation is going to be bowing before Jesus. There is coming a day where the political authority will be established. It'll be there. He'll rule and he'll reign. But there's more to be reigned over than just those borders and kings and presidents. 
He had to reign over our hearts. And in his wisdom, he did it. In his wisdom, he succeeded by failing. He lived by dying. He gave us life with his death. Look, dumb, dumb at the time, but we look back and we say, he is exceedingly wise. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes for a second, please. You know, as dumb as, as the cross looked at the time, the Bible says that angels long to look into it. It's so wise that angels want to see it. You know, if, you, if you're here today and you say, some of this sounds a little bit new to me. You know, I understood the part where I was a sinner. I understood that I wasn't right with God and, and I had always been taught, so I just need to do good things now and, and that'll make me right with God. I just need to go to church enough, put enough money in, kind of do some good works to make up for the bad. That's where I've always been. But now I hear this, and it sounds like a different story, and the truth is, yeah, it's a very different story. The story of Christianity is that while we were still sinners, while we still deserved hell and death, while there, we had cut that chain that connected us to God, Jesus Christ, the Savior, who was all God and all man, came and he died on the cross. And when he did that, he absorbed the wrath of God. He died on our behalf. All the punishment that we deserved, he took. He died, he was buried, and he rose again. So the Bible says, whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. It doesn't make a lot of sense. It's not the system we would have made up, but God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. He's higher than us. And so the way we respond to that and the way we become part of that new humanity that God is building is by turning our back on sin and unbelief and just trusting in Jesus. We stop trusting in our religion, our good works. We stop trusting in our own wisdom to figure out how to connect ourselves back to God. And we trust in the wisdom of God on the cross that looks like foolishness. And then the Bible promises if we believe in him, we won't perish. We'll have everlasting life. We'll be part of that new humanity. We'll be on that new creation. And just the way things were meant to be, they will be. There's coming that day when the dwelling place of God will be with men. When all the tears will be wiped away, there will be no more pain and sorrow and sickness and death. It's gone. Everything's made new. The story of the Bible is the story of God making everything, watching it fall, and then redeeming everything. And as Christians, we get to be part of the greatest story ever told, the story that our hearts were made for. So if you're here and you recognize that, that, that you're apart from God, that you don't have that connection with him, that that chain that connected you to God is broken, turn from sin and trust Jesus. Cry out to him, believing the promise of the Bible that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And in whatever words you want, you can just say, God, I know I'm sinful. I know I deserve your judgment but I'm turning from sin, I'm turning from unbelief, and I'm trusting in you. God, I don't get you. I don't understand you. Your ways are not my ways, but I trust that you're wise.